Welcome to the audio podcast for the main service of Northridge Church. Our hope is that this will be a tool that blesses and challenges you in your walk with Jesus. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, you can visit us at nrchurch.ca or join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until we meet, be blessed and enjoy the word for today. I should, I should probably first explain my inappropriate laughter when Ryan's blubbering up at the, up at the, to, up at the front talking about Simeon. And then I start laughing when he makes the comment about the Christmas carol. I heard them practicing this morning, and they're doing a Christmas carol. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. And then when he explained the story behind it, um, that's why I was loud and inappropriate in my laughter. So I apologize. Let's just get that all out of the, out, out of the way here. Um, I'm going to give the kids another chance. I don't know if anybody's lingered, but today's going to be rated a little like TV mature when I eventually get to... Uh, my point. But here's the other point. Uh, have you ever heard a pastor say, you know what, I, I was going to preach on one thing, but I'm, now I'm going to totally riff and just do something else? That, in my mind, my cynical mind, is usually code for I didn't really prepare very well. And so, but I can assure you, I've got notes and notes and notes that I will get to. But the point that I wanted to make today has shrunk to a, um, a bit of an afterthought. Uh, I, I really, uh, it actually started last night um, at SNL carried on at pre-service prayer, and then uh, what Ryan was bringing to us about Messiah is just, it's just unignorable. And there's a word that I believe I have for you today, whether you're here or whether you're connecting at home. Let me start where it started. Last night, um, I actually had extra time to prepare because Steve Bennett was bringing the word uh, last night, and um, his topic was the woman at the well. The w- woman at the well. So the Samaritan woman at the well, and he did a great job. In fact, he had a map and explained thoroughly just how, uh, how much the, the nation of the Samaritans were this outcast nation. They were despised by the Jews to the point that when it came from traveling in the north down to the south, they would cross the Jordan and, and go all the way around Samaria to avoid even kind of bumping into any of the Samaritans. But this story is a specific story of of Jesus going into Samaria, taking his followers into Samaria, much to their chagrin, and then seeking out this single woman, again, which is a bit of a taboo thing to do. There is this woman at the well, and he just zeroed in on her, and he went to her. And he, he was good at small talk, like, can you get me some water? And... She's like, okay, I'll help you. And they, and they get, to, get to talking. And in it, he reveals in her, he prophesies and, and he kind of questions, hey, where's your husband? And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, well, that's right. You've had five and the man you're with today or these days isn't even your husband. He kind of calls out that lifestyle in her. And she's, her mind is blown. And, and she's like, how, how do you know all this stuff? And, and he explains a little bit. She says, well, the good news is that someday the Messiah is going to come and he'll, he'll help us all kind of figure all this stuff out. And that's when Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah. And I've heard the story 106 times. But last night, Steve, there's something in, in the anointing of the way, it, it, it blew my mind, this one idea that this Messiah, and we know this means the one who saves. That Messiah came to 
this lady. And it, it exploded this idea of, uh, in fact, um, Steve also shared this song by Lauren Dale called Rescue. But it, it exploded this idea that when the Messiah comes to save, he doesn't do it from his couch. He doesn't sit there and wait for you to come. Actually, I used the example last night. He's not a firefighter that invites people with burning houses. Come, come to the fire hall. We'll take care of you. He goes to rescue. He's the Messiah. He comes to save. He doesn't go around Samaria. He goes into the heart of Samaria to save this woman. And then what Ryan was bringing to us this morning, this longing, this yearning, this waiting for the Messiah. Simeon was just so full of faith and he was just, he's waiting patiently for the one to come. And that moment when he has this encounter with the one they've been waiting for all this time. Been talked about uh, John the Baptist paved the way and, and well, actually, he hadn't done it at, at that point. But the, the word was going before him. The prophetic, uh, the messianic prophecies had come before him. And, and they knew this Messiah was coming. And Simeon finally got to see the Messiah. And it was this heart-exploding moment. Knowing this is the one who's come to save. And that's the other part of it. When you think of our brokenness and the broken world that we live in. Jesus didn't sit in his fire hall in heaven, and say, you know what, just come, come to me and I'll fix you. He came to us. He's this active saver, the Messiah who comes to save. And uh, that's kind of what started to stir things up, and then Ryan followed up on that. But then the other word that, that came this morning when we were praying, um, it was piling on uh, a bit of a, a story that I just went through. This Thursday... Let me back it up. I'm a disc golfer. I was waiting for a woohoo. There are no other, yeah, yeah. Actually, I saw my son bow his head in shame. He's <laughs> like, oh, dad, this is not something to celebrate. I, I, am, I, I love disc golf. You know it probably better as frisbee golf or froth. Um, but yes, I take it very seriously. I've got a backpack full of discs. And I go out, I actually keep track on my watch. And there's an app that compares my scores to everybody else's. I compete in tournaments, and I met this guy, and Andrew might be checking us out online, I'm not sure, this guy named Andrew, we, we met at a tournament, and uh, we hit it off, uh, he's a teacher in, in mission, and he's been really invitational, he's like a, a disc golf missionary, really, and, and he gets out a lot, like he goes, he goes disc golfing quite often, and he almost always connects, hey, what, you got time to go play? And, uh, and any chance I get, I, I go and play disc golf with him. And sometimes I'm looking at my schedule and I look at Carolee and I'm like, okay, I probably shouldn't go now, so I have to turn him down every once in a while. And so I feel a little bit of guilt that I'm not going with the disc golf missionary. So the other day, he invited uh, Carolee and I out to go with him and his girlfriend. It's called the Historic Dudney Inn. And I've been there, in fact, we've been there for Church, Church of the Blues on a Sunday. They do uh, live music. It's incredible. But on Thursdays, they do open mic, and Andrew plays guitar, and his, his, wife, his girlfriend uh, sings really beautifully. And they go and do open mic, and he says, hey, I, I know you're a drummer. Why don't you come play Cajon with us? I'm like, okay, that sounds good. And it turned out Carolee was with Emily, and they were bridesmaid 
dress shopping so she could come. So I, I, okay, I'll be third wheel. I'll go experience and embrace being a third wheel with, with this guy and his girlfriend. And uh, so I show up, and uh, he's already starting to orchestrate this really large table. Um, I, I thought, I, and I wasn't hurt, but I thought it was just going to be the three of us. And it turns out it was, they were celebrating her birthday. And there ended up being a group about 12 to 15 of her, like, closest friends and me. And, and it was, you know what, they did everything. They were very friendly. They were all kind of like missionaries, almost like Dudney Pub missionaries. Like, you are welcome here. You belong here. And they were trying to make me feel good about being there, but the, I, I stuck out a bit like a sore thumb. And I started to make a connection. Um, and the connection I, I made was to this place. And I think about how we refer to this place, how I refer to you as family, how I refer to you as like my brothers and sisters. And we invite you into this deep and intimate relationship. And, and we even say from the pulpit that this isn't the place where you will go the deepest. You need to connect to a small group. People that will celebrate the highs with you and, and mourn with the lows through you, uh, with you. And, and we celebrate this intimacy. But I got this picture of, of what it must be like to be the person trying to break into that Im- intimacy. And I was, I was really convicted. But I'm also perplexed because I wouldn't want to do anything to turn down the intimacy of this place and of our small groups. We, we are on mission to train up the saints. There, there's discipling that needs to happen. We need to grow. And part of that is relational. We need to grow together. So we don't want to turn that down. But we've got to figure out a way, and I, and I don't know it in my head, what that way is, is to make sure that people know this isn't just our club. That there is an invitation to belong. And the word this morning was this connection between the word encouragement and the giving of courage. And, and one of the things we prayed this morning was that the interactions that would happen in this space would literally give courage to people for the week to come. And Matt was 100% correct. Uh, this world is a mess. We need saving. But we need what we need to get through the week as well. We need courage to get through the week. And so we need the encouragers. Some of you, that's your, that's your gift. It's awesome to see. I can't, remember where, I can't remember where you sat, Mark Crosby. But seeing Mark, and those of you who know, there you go. Those of you who know who Mark, you spend five minutes with Mark and the world just feels a little brighter. He's got a gift. He, he gives people courage with his words. And there are many of you, that's your thing. That's your superpower. That's what God has given you to give to others. And, and I started to get this picture as we were praying that we need this place to become a place where somebody comes to this church and they connect with an encourager. And they can't get enough of it. They've got to come back the next week. And then they start to get to know that that's not just them. That's not just their personality. That's this spiritual gift that has been downloaded as the word in my head, but it's been given to them to give as a gift to others. 
And then they start to ask questions about this Holy Spirit and about our God. And it turns into this pursuit of the Messiah who is in the same time pursuing us, looking to save us. That's what we need. And, and again, I know that's a, a really long preamble, and I'm making this slide job really easy today. Um, but I just really feel like there, there's a word for us today. And a word for us extended on online too. I'll talk to the camera just for a second. Um, it's time to start. I, I don't want to say it's time to start coming into this space because everybody's going to come into this space at a different time. We've all got different comfort levels and that's fine. But if you're online right now, I would encourage you, say hi in the chat. Make that step. Start to connect that way. Um, here live, I am denying you permission to show up and leave without making those lateral connections. It, it is a beautiful thing. And, and I, again, I love what Matt said about worship. How we get this opportunity to enter the throne room and, and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I love that Sundays provides a calendar appointment to come before the Father. We can do it any time, any place. But there's this time where we get to do it together. Honestly, when it comes to the Word, I've been blessed over COVID. There are so many good preachers online. And honestly, if you're choosing Northridge as your place to, to get preaching, there's, there's better stuff out there. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, there are better options. But when it comes to worship, uh, as, as much as we, we love and we, we stream the worship and the sound is as good as we can get it, there's nothing like being together and, and bumping into the person next to you and worshiping together, accidentally touching fingers when your hands go up in the air. Okay, There's something about worshiping live together. And this experience has got to be something that um, becomes craved, that we realize there's, this, there's something that we miss about it. But that, that craved experience, every part of it, should be pointing eventually to the Father. Pointing to Jesus. We come to be encouraged. We come to worship. But we come to experience and be transformed by the Father. Alright? That's got nothing to do with what I want to preach on today. In fact, today is, is a really weird message. And uh, I'm a little bit nervous about where we're going to go with it. Um, but I've got lots of notes. So I'll be looking down and, and reading my notes a lot. Uh, let's pick up in... Uh, in 2 Samuel, we're going to go right from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 18. So we're going to cover quite a bit of narrative. And a lot of it is really awkward. If we look at the first slide, um, we're going to learn about Amnon and Tamar. Now Amnon is David's firstborn son. And as we know traditionally, there's something just really special about that first child. Um, story, I don't know how many of you know, but um, uh, our firstborn, uh, we didn't know this at the time. Uh, actually, I'll, I should, should have told the story differently. Um, we were pregnant. Actually, I wasn't pregnant. I may look pregnant, but uh, I wasn't pregnant. My wife was pregnant, quite pregnant, and we were serving at Alpha in the basement of Northside Church up on the hill. And Carolee went up to go to the bathroom. and didn't come back for a long time. I got a tap on the shoulder. And somebody said, you got you to gotta come. Carolee needs you. And uh, 
we had been trying for a long time to get pregnant. And uh, uh, we had been married six years, and, and we had hoped to be pregnant by that time. And I saw Carolee, and she was quite upset. She had just miscarried. And, and we were so excited about being pregnant. And so it was such a, a brutal roller coaster low. And um, I don't know how much you know about the process after losing a baby, but um, we went, I think it's called, the, to go and do the DNC. And when we were there, they found a heartbeat. And uh, it turned out that David was a twin. And, um, and so we're back up on the, the highest of highs in the roller coaster again, uh, but nervous, excited and nervous. And, and so we, we know that moment of the birth of your first kid. Now, okay, we've, we're starting a family. And it's really exciting. And, and there's something really special about this Amnon. He was David's firstborn. But as you know, there was, there was some sin in David's life before the birth of his kids. And it just seemed to, to start this cataclysmic, ongoing family disaster for him. We see the characters here in 2 Samuel 13, 1-22. You've got Amnon, then you've got Absalom, who's another son of David. But he's the son of Mekah, the Geshurite. That comes into play later on. And then Tamar is Absalom's sister. And the horrible part of the story is that Amnon was madly, not even in love, but in lust for his brother's sister. So his half-sister Tamar. And uh, so he had this incestuous desire for his sister. And it was just all-consuming. It was literally messing with his head. And so he's got a buddy, Jonadab, a cousin. He's the son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab is this, this schemer and comes up with this plan to get Amnon what he wants. And sure enough, they act out this plan, and Amnon rapes his, his sister Tamar. And it's just like instantly, after all of that burning desire in him was satiated, he hated her. He loathed her. And, and, and she, because there's some messed up family traditions in the, back there, she was ready to, to now be his wife. But he just despised her, locked her out. And Absalom heard about this. In fact, Absalom could see that something, wrong was, something was wrong with his sister. And he knew instantly that it was Amnon. And he was furious. He was, he, was, he was ready to do his brother in. David, Tamar's uh, father and king of Israel, also found out. And he was enraged, obviously, for good reason, enraged with Amnon. And, and we, we see in Scripture that he's furious, but that he does nothing about it. And it's this really weird moment but uh, one of the commentaries talks about how it's, it's very possible that David was reminded of his own sin. Of his own uh, failings when it came to sexual purity. And he probably kind of felt like, well, I've got to deal with the log in my own eye. I shouldn't necessarily bust Amnon for what he's done because I've done worse. He's probably still feeling some guilt and shame for what he's done. But as mad as he was with Amnon... He didn't do anything about it. Well, if we go on to the next slide. Two full years later, 
Absalom finally makes a plan or puts a plan into action to get Amnon drunk and then have him killed. But that Jonadab, that same schemer that helped Amnon be with Tamar, he tells on Absalom and Absalom is in trouble. He's, he, he's now guilty that the blood of his brother is on his hands and he knows that the consequence before his father is going to be death. death. He has killed the king's firstborn son. And so he flees for his life. He goes back to his mother's home country of Gersher. But then we see in 2 Samuel 14, at the beginning there from verses 1 to, 14, uh, 1 to 24, three years later, Absalom, he's like, okay, I've, I've, I've got to go home. And then it was Joab, confidant of David, who kind of brings a plan together to bring Absalom safe, safely home. He gets this woman of Tekoa to play act. She's known as this wise woman. She's well-respected uh, in Tekoa. But Joab sends her before Absalom to David. And, and, and she comes and, and she starts to tell a story about how she's lost her husband. And she had two sons. And uh, they, they got into a fight. and There was nobody to break up the fight. So one son killed the other son. And now she's worried that because that one son has killed the other son, that that son's life is forfeit, that he's going to have to be killed for his sin, for his wrongdoing. And she's like, I can't lose another child, King David. What do I do? And David says, you know what? Don't worry about it. You can come under the king's protection. I, I, I make a vow to you that your son will be safe. This, this man will not be punished. And almost flipping the script like Nathan did, Remember when Nathan convicted David, told him the story of the sheep, and then he flipped, he says, you're the one who stole that person's sheep. Almost in that same way, everything got flipped, and, and, and David realized they're talking about Absalom, and now Absalom was given asylum back in Jerusalem. In fact, we read here, this is verse 11 in chapter 14. She said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son may not be destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. He had been tricked. We go on to 2 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, and, and this is verses 25 to 15, and then it goes all the way, I don't know what I've got, oh, 25 and then to chapter 15, 12. And this is the story of how Absalom now in Jerusalem starts to see himself as the future king of Israel. I, don't, I didn't look up and, and to see how old David would have been at this time, but he starts to see the writing of the wall that, that there's a, a space for him to usurp his father. And, and, the, and the throne of Israel becomes very attractive to Absalom. And he literally starts to campaign and conspire against the king. In fact, we read... In verses 25 and 6, it says this. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Wait till you hear what his attractive feature was. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. This was the thing. He had a head of hair, this Absalom. 200 shekels worth of hair he cut every year. 
He was this attractive, who's that guy, Fabio? Kind of, uh, that's kind of who you need to picture when you think of Absalom. So when Absalom came back to Jerusalem, he lived in Jerusalem and he was the king's son, but he lived apart. In fact, he avoided King David for two years while in Jerusalem. But he got tired of living as an outcast in Jerusalem. And so he forced Joab. Remember, Joab is, is David's kind of confidant and close friend. He forced him to, to get him to, to speak with his father. And 15, 1 to 4, it says this. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses. Oh, screw it. I didn't finish that part of the story. He got before David, and David started to say, okay, you can have a place here. You can, you, we can coexist safely. So then we go on to verses 1 to 4. It says this. After, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From which city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that if I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Absalom set up shop in a place to intercept the people who had problems. And then he started to paint a picture in the minds of the locals that, man, things would be a lot better if he, Absalom, were king of Israel. Verses 7 and 9 says this, At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur when he was escaping his father in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, which he did, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithopel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from the city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. We see that Absalom has got his foot in the door. The conspiracy is in full flight. And we see in 2 Samuel 15, verses 30 to 7, uh, 13 to 37, we see the lights go on for David's men, for David's counselors. Word has gotten back to them and, and thus gotten back to David that Absalom is on the rise. His stock is rising. His favor in Israel is rising. People are starting to see him as the future king. And I don't want to get into it too much right now. I'm going to read a little bit more. Let's go on to verse 25, 26. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. So David has escaped from Jerusalem and now he's planning his return. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, 
he will bring me back and let me see both it and his, and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Let me pause there for a second. In this moment, we see a, a good part of David's heart. Let me explain what I mean by that. And this really is the theme that I want to draw out of this scripture and, and where we go from here. The best parts of David, David's greatest hits, are the moments when he was solely focused, solely devoted, solely obedient to the, to the king, to God. We see even as a child when he fights Goliath, he had no thought of the natural odds against him. That he was a young boy going to fight a giant. All he saw was that God was being violated with the words of this giant. And he wasn't going to stand for it because his God was the king of kings. And he knew he had, he was full of confidence that the king would help him be victorious. In the same way we see this beautiful moment or a series of moments after David is anointed king of Israel, but he has not yet been appointed, Saul is still on the throne. David's counselors and confidants are telling David, you need to be the king. You've been anointed. It's your place. It's your job. And David said, there's no way I'm raising a hand to Saul. He is God's appointed king. It's only when God wants me to be king that I will sit on the throne and not a second earlier. It's another highlight moment where David's eyes are on God and he is subject to the will and the path that God has for him. He won't be distracted by good advisors, people he, he knows and trusts. But then we see the flip side. If that's a highlight, the low light is when David turns to his selfishness. And he takes Bathsheba. And, and then to clean up that mess after taking Bathsheba, he has her husband killed. Those are the lowlights, the moments when he's most selfish. The, the moments when he thinks the most of himself. But we see here, David is the rightful king of Israel. He is anointed and appointed to lead God's chosen people. And yet, Absalom is starting to rise up. David could have, in his selfishness, felt threatened. David could have, in his selfishness, gone quickly to deal with the problem. But instead, he takes some time outside of Jerusalem, and as he comes back into Jerusalem, he makes this, this, uh, this he says it publicly, but he, he brings this before the Lord. He says, if this is where I'm supposed to be, make it so, God. But if, if, if this throne is not for me anymore, then don't let me take it. Don't let me sit on that throne. Because I want to be right with you, God. That's what's important to David in this moment. He's not worried about his selfish pride and about his divine right of being king. He's worried about being right with God. And these are the moments of a beautiful heart posture that I think the Word wants to point to in David over and over again. All right, this takes us over to 
2 Samuel 16. And we encounter this guy named Shimei or Shimei, or I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I love Steve when he's confessing about not having, knowing how to pronounce the names of places and people. I, I'm the same way. But Shimei, it says here he curses David. Shimei is a descendant of Saul. And there's this lingering bitterness that David is now king of Israel and that Shimei's ancestor or relative is no longer king of Israel. And he curses David. And we read here in chapter 16, verses 5 to 8. It says, When King David came to Behurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Can you imagine being one of David's mighty men and seeing this single person chucking rocks and throwing curses? At your king. They must have been looking to him. Like what is your response going to be? And again. If, if we look at things from a perspective of what's, what does David deserve? He's the king of Israel. He deserves this man's respect. This man is a subject of David's kingdom. What David deserves is respect. And he's getting the opposite. But that's not where David came from. David kind of just put his head down, and he kept going. And, and in fact, he said, you know what? He's God's problem. Shammai is God's problem. He's going to have to uh, go before God someday and account for what he's done, the, the, the disrespect that he's shown me. David took the high road. And Absalom was away from Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 16, verses 15 to 23, we see that he's now coming back. And we actually read in verse 20, it goes like this. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now one thing, the next verse is actually 2 Samuel 16, 23. I didn't put it up on the screen. It says, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. This was a man of God. And his advice to Absalom was go and get with every one of David's concubines. And do it publicly. Let everybody see that you're doing this disrespectful thing. You're going to become a stench. You're picking a fight with your father. You're picking a fight with the king. You're putting all the cards on the table and declaring that you're at war. And he did it. Like I said, this is bit of a, an awkward series of texts. But he did that. 
and again, that probably raises a ton of questions about you and how how David and, and God's kings were allowed to have multiple wives and concubines. We're not going to go there today. We're going to go instead to 2 Samuel 17. And we see this man, Hushai, look out for and save King David. In uh, verses 5 to 7, it goes like this. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also. Let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithopel, I should really just, let's call him Bob. This is what Bob has said. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Bob has given is not good. Later he says, But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for the multitude, and that you go to battle in person. This Hushai has given advice to collect the armies. But what he does with that information, we see in verses 15 and 16, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Bob counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness. But by all means, pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Hushai went behind Absalom's back to warn David. One thing led to another. And the climax of the whole story we see in 2 Samuel 18. This Absalom, the usurper, is in these little battles with David. In fact, we see in uh, chapter 18, verses 1 and then 5 to 8, it goes like this. David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He's getting his war party together. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai. And I've highlighted these words, words, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And pause here I, I think I think there's one part of this is that David has this father son connection to Absalom I think there's a bit of that but I think bigger than that is David is able to block out all of the noise all of the drama because he he's on the mission that God gave him he is there to be king of Israel and he 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 knows that his time as king of Israel is only going to last as long as God wants it to last. Not a second longer. So he's not bothered in the same way by Absalom and his uprising. Because Absalom is not going to be effective unless it is God's timing for Absalom to take the throne. He sits, David sits on the throne with this God confidence this is where he is to be. And it doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter what all the other noise is. All the other subplots and drama. Until God wants me off the throne, I, I'm going to be on this throne. And I don't need to, to campaign or lobby to stay here. And to me, it's a beautiful image of how his eyes were on the Father. And, and we will have a conclusion here in just a moment. But I just, this is what I want for me. This is what I want for you. I want to be filled with such a confidence. I'll be specific. 
I want to be filled with such a confidence that pastoring this church is what God has for me to do. That I can go about my business and not be bothered by the other noise. I want to have an ear for it. I want to learn from my stupid, I'm David as, David as well, and I'll make lots of mistakes, and I need to learn from those mistakes. But I, I want to be filled with the confidence to know that this is what God has for me to do right now. And that my job is to be obedient and put in the work, listen to him until he calls me out of this. And this is actually something, this is all stemming, I've referred to it many times, uh, from a short story or a short book called The Tale of Three Kings. And it's something I've overapplied in my life. But I'll tell you what, in church, this is what I want for you. It has filled me with a boldness to, to let the burden go. I don't need to worry about this position. I don't need to, to hold on and strive for this position for, to, be, to, to be your pastor. I can let it go because if God doesn't want me here, I don't want to be here. I don't want to force myself on you if God's got something else planned for Northridge Church. And this, that might be an obvious application, but what about you in the things that you're called to do? In, in where you've been positioned? What if we took on that same posture? That if this is what God has for you, you don't have to campaign to be there. You don't have to strive to be there. In the same way, if you've got a goal and there's, there's a position that you want, you don't need to strive to get there. If it's God's for you, He's going to put you there. But if it's not God's for you, you don't want it. You don't want to be the square peg trying to ram into that round hole. Okay? That's the perspective. That's the, the dream I want to kind of put into you. Let's, let's go back to you. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai. Deal gently for my sake with his young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by their servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. And the mule went under, a th under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak. Probably because of his huge hair. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Then why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to, ha to give you ten pieces of silver at a belt. But the man, and look at how David's attitude has been contagious. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. Joab went into selfish mode. Joab said, 
I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the yoke. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back, back up, please. We see Joab, with good intentions, he, he sees Absalom as this evil usurper. And with good intentions, he wants to end that threat to his king. But in doing so, he has forsaken the obedience that the king has told him specifically, have mercy on my son. And in a final moment of, of, of demonstration of the heart of David, we see, and there's a whole story of how the news gets to David, we see when the news gets to David, he doesn't celebrate freedom from the tyranny or the, the, um, the uh, working against him of his son Absalom. We don't see him go, oh, phew, my throne is safe. We see him mourn the loss of his son. We see him sad that this, this child who he loved is dead. And I want to I sum it up like this. David's best moments were when he had his eyes on God and when he was about following and obeying and serving a king, the king of kings. And his lowest moments were, were when he was serving himself, when he fed his selfishness, when he acted with his best in mind. And church, it's, it's hard not to slip into selfishness. Uh, last night when we were baptizing these, these people, these men and women, it was this declaration, this death to self, putting death to all that selfishness and rising up a new creation. And I know many of us in this room have been baptized. We've died to ourselves, but this is something we've got to do over and over again. We've got to make this a practice, not literally being baptized, but we've got to put ourselves last. We've got to die to ourselves. We've got to ignore our selfish inclinations. And we've got to pursue the way that God has for us. Alright, this is one of those opportunities where we can turn our eyes to God. I love worship. And I love worshiping with you. Let's stand together and let's sing out praise and worship to the King of Kings. Thank you for joining us for our main service. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church or if you just want to talk to someone about what you've heard on this podcast, please email us at info at nrchurch.ca. We'd love to get to know you better. Until then, be safe and be blessed.